Open your Bibles uh, with me to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Trudging towards the end of this glorious letter. I'm going to have to oil that door. <laughs> we looked last week at Romans 15, 14, uh, obviously with the, the baby dedication that we had, which was just a, what a fun, wonderful time there. Uh, we covered one whole verse, <laughs> and, and yet it's an important verse talking about the whole concept of admonition, loving correction. Verse 14 in Romans 15 marks the beginning also of the final section of this book. Uh, we've looked at, remember, the first three chapters, plus or minus, uh, into chapter 3, verse 20, I believe it is. It talks about the condition of man, and then from there to the end of chapter 8, we've seen and looked at God's work through the cross, and the resurrection of Christ, which he's performed on our behalves, and that work being critical in our understanding of just what the nuts and bolts of Christianity is. And then we looked in chapters 9, 10, and 11 at God's disposition, past, present, and future for Israel, and what his disposition towards her in these last days is. It's not finished. So then from the beginning of chapter 12, we looked at that by the mercies of God, the mercies being everything that we'd looked at up until that point, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your reasonable service of worship. Beautiful verse. And then Paul unpacks that all the way through the last study that we had. He's talking about the practical application of God's word in our lives, because folks, if we don't apply his word, It's a book report. It's not his will. So we've studied these truths and and the application of them, and and that brought us up to the beginning of chapter 15, and we looked at that as far as concluding what he had been talking about, about the weaker brother and the stronger brother and the Jew and the Gentile and all of that, again, applying that uh, to the church. So beginning now in verse 14 of chapter 15 and going through the end of the book, Paul begins to look inward. He's, he's been speaking outwardly to the church, to the people, uh, to the different groups there. We've talked about that in Rome, the, there being a, a sizable Jewish Christian contingent there. And also it was a Gentile church. And so uh, we've looked at that. And, and now as he begins to wind down, He's going to beginning, begin to begin to talk about his ministry, about his own life and his own desires. Uh, he wants to talk about his travel plans. He's, uh, he talks here about his intention to visit this church at Rome. So remember, though, that he wasn't the one that planted this church. This was planted by someone else. He knew, most likely, he knew, the, he knew those who had. He was very well acquainted with some of the people at the church, and we'll look at that in chapter 16. Uh, for instance, Priscilla and Aquila, they were people that he had ministered with in Ephesus. He'd met them in Corinth, and they'd, uh, their lives had intersected a number of times. But as we'll see here, he longed to visit the Romans. Verse 14. He says, now I, I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. 
Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God given to me by God, the grace given to me by God, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So last week, as I mentioned, we looked at admonition, loving correction. Uh, we looked at verse 14 and how it is that Paul begins by acknowledging their spiritual progress. Uh, he's telling them they'll be able to effectively admonish one another as a result of being full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. He's saying that the purpose of their admonition towards one another is not so much to get them on the right track, but to keep them on the right track. Very often that's what happens in our lives when someone admonishes us. It's not because there's some new thing that we need to grab a hold of. It's because it's like, you know, and I'll tell you, I, there have been times where loving correction has come to me that, I, I, you know, if we approach that with a, a humble heart, it's a good thing. So keeping them on the right track. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen tells us, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Also in James four seventeen, we read, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So that's the idea here. He is, he's saying, hang in there, especially when things are rough. We're faced with choices, whether to react or to respond. Happens in all of our lives, happens often in all of our lives. In any given situation that we look to the Lord for the answers. So he's saying, look, I'm confident about you that you're full of knowledge. You're full of wisdom. It's as though also I <laughs> think about this. It's not like he's buttering them up necessarily, but I also think that he's anticipating some questions that might be coming up in their minds and hearts. He, things like, well, Paul, what do you, do you think we don't know about these things? Paul, do you think that we're totally uninformed with regard to the things of God? Do you think that we aren't grounded in sound doctrine? I mean, those are things that when someone is giving instruction comes up in our minds. Yeah, I've got that. I understand that. And so he's anticipating that, I believe anyway, uh, into interpretation there. But his point in this is that Roman Christians were not ignorant. They were not weak. But he wanted to remind them nonetheless. In verse 15, he's stating that his intention is just that, to bring them a reminder. In Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 1, the apostle wrote to the church at Philippi, he says, to write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. So, repetition, yeah. Uh, I've, I've heard it said that the Bible is a handful of, of very practical, and I think it's more than a handful, but to make the point, a very practical advice, very practical instruction. And, and that that those concepts and those realities come at us in a number of different stories through a number of different people in a number of different ways, but they all come down to the fundamental understanding that we have in Christ of God. So we need to understand the difference about learning about him as he is from the scriptures and seeking a new thing. Uh, That's a really important thing because there is a whole group out there in the body of Christ that I believe is straying from sound doctrine, looking, 
for God to come up with and, and, and just these weird things. I don't, I, I'm resisting rabbit trailing on this because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. But the point is, is do we look to God to speak to us by his spirit through his word? Do we look to him to reveal himself to us? Do we look to God for divine instruction in matters of faith and practice? And the answer to all of these is yes. However, it's a slippery slope to come wanting some new revelation from God that's not contained within his word or is inconsistent with or directly contradicts his word. There's a lot of that going on out there, people coming up with all kinds of things. Because once you depart from that understanding, the door is open for all manner of heresy, for all manner of false doctrine, for all manner of false teaching. Being consistent with what Paul says here, it's not about that. It's about being reminded of what's already here. Now, that's why we see that there's a spiritual dynamic that, have you ever noticed in your studying God's word that you can go to his word and, and go to the same passage, maybe years apart, and, and have the Lord speak to you some totally different way or give you some deeper understanding or some some thing that you grasped that you hadn't even considered before. It's because his word is alive. It's, it is his living word. It is by his spirit through his word that he gives us understanding. The other reason Paul's writing these things to them is because he has a strong desire and intention to fulfill his ministry and the ministry that God has given him. So, Although there was evidently was a large Messianic Jewish contingent, as I mentioned in the church in Rome, that church was a church within a Gentile land and a Gentile culture. And his primary ministry, the Apostle Paul's primary ministry, was to the Gentiles, both in planting churches personally and in the many letters that he wrote, uh, to which we benefit. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul after having come to the Lord and, on, and having had his Damascus Road experience and then having been instructed by Jesus himself, I'd love to go into that, but we don't have time. He goes up to Jerusalem to visit with the, the elders, the, the apostles there. And, and it says in Galatians 2.9, when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace of God uh, that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. In other words, their ministry would be primarily to the Jews. Paul's ministry, along with Barnabas at that time, would be primarily to the Gentiles, anybody that's not Jewish. It's also worth noting, as we look here in verse 16, the priestly language that Paul uses. This is fascinating to me. In verse 16, I'll read it again. He says that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, very often in God's word, the word minister is translated, it means a servant. Not so here. The Greek word for minister is liturgos, where we get the word liturgy. And when he talks about ministering here, he's talking about priestly service. This is this has nuances of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, priestly ministry that went on where the priest would take the sacrifice and and pray over it and that said so the blood would flow the sacrifice would be sanctified and would be presented to God as an atonement for sin and knowing that Jesus has already come that sin has already been atoned for he's saying this he's saying 
uh, in performing these priestly duties as a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentile, Gentiles, when he's saying he's ministering the gospel of God, he's including all that that means. And as we've seen repeatedly through the New Testament, through this book, it's not by the works of the law, but by the grace of God. So as a result of Paul's ministering the grace of God to the Gentiles, they in turn are being cleansed by the Holy Spirit, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable to God. Amazing language. And again, I've read over this so many times, and as I looked at this and as I sort of took it apart preparing for this morning, this is something that I've, again, as I've studied God's word, I never saw this before. And I began to just kind of marvel at the language, the wording that's being used. Uh, and, and Paul knows that they would understand that the Jewish, especially the Messianic Christians in Rome, would connect with this. And they would see exactly what he's saying here with reference to the Gentiles being an offering that would be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, he says, Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. So he says, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Notice in verse 17, he says, I've reason to glory in Christ, referring to the ministry that he'd been given. His glory was certainly, his glorying was certainly not in himself, uh, but in that which Christ had accomplished in him, as we see in verses 18 and 19. Folks, it's important to remember that fruitful service to God uh, has a, always has as its aim to bring him glory, to magnify his kingdom, to celebrate the work he has done and is doing in and through us. There's a King James word that's used in Philippians 2.3. The New American Standard renders this verse, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. The, the word used in the King James is do nothing from vainglory. Uh, and I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an appropriate word. And, and the interesting thing about this is whether I'm operating from a place of desiring to glorify Christ or from a place of vainglory, that can look the same initially on the surface. Because what we're talking about are motives of the heart. We do well to periodically engage in honest self-evaluation. I'll tell you what, there have been times where I laughingly say there's blood all over my office because the Lord is, is giving me the, the desire to, to look at my own heart on a thing. And, and the Bible tells us our hearts are deceitfully wicked above some things. It's not what it says. Because our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know them? And the Spirit of God plumbing our hearts, giving us the ability to self-evaluate, very often will bring conviction in areas that we really hadn't considered. Be open to the work, to the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life personally, privately, as you go through and you deal with different things. In this case, the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, it's for his glory. It's not for mine. I, some of the things that come to me is, is, do I want to be seen? Or do I want he and his work to be seen in my life? It can look the same. 
Do I want everyone to know how much I know, how smart I am, how much scripture I've studied? Or is my aim that they would know him better or love him more? This is a tough one, a question I've asked rhetorically in observing some so-called ministries out there. And it's this. Whose kingdom am I wanting to build? His or mine? You look around, and I'll tell you what, it can look very spiritual. But as you hang with a ministry, as you hang with a particular ideology or a particular thing that's out there, usually... God's faithful. He brings out the, the, the root, the core of that. And if you find that you're involved with a ministry that is involved in this, run. The ministry should be a place where, where integrity is, is totally at the center. It's involved. So answering these things in our own lives can be painful, but they're worth asking and applying to our lives, to our ministry. If you want to have fruitful ministry, The motives of your heart are all important. The Bible makes a clear distinction between godly aspiration. Paul says to Timothy, he says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a good work he desires to do. But he also talks about selfish ambition. Again, can look the same on the surface. The motive of the heart is completely different. Notice in verse 19, Paul goes into the supernatural aspects of the true gospel. I think this is something that we really need to look at. Now, someone was talking to me not too long ago, and they they had talked about going to a church. I'm not going to name the church. There's a church here in town. And they asked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the answer that they got was, we don't talk about that here. (laughs) And I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, What Paul is saying here, however is if you take out the supernatural, because that's what he's talking about. When he's talking about signs and wonders, he's talking about beyond the natural, supernatural, beyond the natural. You gut the gospel. It becomes a thing. It becomes an ism. Because the life of God is central to the gospel. The, the work of the Spirit is central to the gospel, and he is totally into beyond the natural in our lives. I want to read something to you. This is from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. I read quotes from this from time to time. If you don't have it, there's a whole website that's Webster's 1828 online. Uh, I have it on my phone. I, I just love to look at it because Noah Webster was a godly man. And the things that he gives definition to, I mean, this is, was a great definition. I looked up the word supernatural in Webster's 1828 Dictionary. This is what he has to say. It says, being beyond or exceeding the powers or laws of nature. Miraculous. A supernatural event is one which is not produced according to the ordinary or established laws of natural things. Now, before I go on, here Webster uses 2 Kings 6, where the ladies are right in that area, with the sons of the prophets cutting down trees, and one guy is cutting down a tree and he loses his axe head into the Jordan River. And, and it says that the man of God threw a stick into the water and the axe head floated to the surface and he said, reach down and grab it. And the guy got his axe head back. Webster continues on the definition of the supernatural. He says, thus, if iron is, has more specific gravity than water, it will sink in that fluid and the floating of iron on the water must be a supernatural event. This is the dictionary. Now, no human being can alter a law of nature. The floating of iron on water, therefore, must be caused by divine power 
specially exerted to suspend, in this instance, the law of nature. Hence, supernatural events or miracles can be produced only by the immediate agency of divine power. That's supernatural. Okay, that's that's a crummy television show. Um, some of you got that. So the question becomes, what's the purpose of supernatural signs and wonders that Paul's referring to here? And the answer in this context is that the Gentiles would become obedient, that they would see. And if, I don't have time to go into the book of Acts where, uh, where Luke writes there at the beginning of the book of Acts about signs and wonders and that they are attesting miracles. There are things that God owns the laws of physics and he can bend them when he wants to. It's not a big deal for him. It's a big deal for us. Therefore, it directs our attention, hopefully, the purpose in it is to direct our attention upward. When Jesus did miracles, he, it wasn't just to produce the sign itself. It was to produce the understanding that he alone, you know, which is easier to do, to heal a guy on the Sabbath or to forgive your sins, is what he said. It's the same today. Signs and wonders can only be produced by the immediate agency of divine power. Think about it though, folks. The new birth brought about by the Holy Spirit is a completely miraculous and supernatural event. If you're born again of the Spirit, that is not something to take lightly. It's not something to think, oh yeah, just kind of flippantly, well now I'm a Christian. There's a supernatural working, a very powerful supernatural working that goes on when you are actually given life. It's called regeneration. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead. And now... You've been regenerated. Supernatural event. Not only that, beyond the new birth, it's God's specific will that we live lives marked by the supernatural. Think about it, folks. (laughs) Remove the supernatural, and we're a group of people who come down and sit in a building every week. We sing a few songs, and then we talk about a book. And then we go home. That's not what happens. As we open ourselves to the the ministry of the Spirit, we pray every service, before service, we pray that God would open hearts, that by His Spirit, He would work through His Word, and that as the His Word is ministered to us, I know that different people receive different things. I call it smorgasbord. It's like, I'll throw it all out there, and you take what fits, what the Holy Spirit is taking and, and prompting your heart to receive. And then you go and do business with God on that basis. It's supernatural. Remove the supernatural, and there is no need to live by faith. Let me explain. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. What's he saying? He's talking about things that are beyond the natural. This is precisely why Paul in 1 Corinthians says that he refers to the things of God as being foolishness to the natural man. Not the supernatural man, but the natural man. And my point in all of this is don't get caught up in all the hype. You know, I talked about, I use the title of that television, it's supernatural. Well, it's supernatural when I get out of bed in the morning if I understand the nature of the gospel and I understand the nature of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life. Does he do signs and wonders? Yes, he does. Does he raise people from the dead? I've not seen it, 
but I trust he does. I, you know, there are, there are other lands where the gospel is going out, where God is doing works that, and I don't question these things, but I do want to understand and know that there's a lot of hype out there. There are a lot of things out there that, that are marked as supernatural. You've got to remember one thing. Satan can duplicate anything except one thing, and that's regeneration. He cannot impart life. So be careful. There's a lot of counterfeit in the area of the supernatural out there. Be sure that it lines up with God's word. Be sure that the end of that is is redemption or the gospel or the power of God going out to demonstrate that he is the one with whom we have to do. Verse 20, he says, and now I have made it my aim to preach the gospel and not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he is not announced, they shall see and to those who have not heard shall understand. So, Paul knew that his ministry was not necessarily the same as the next guy, especially because he had an apostolic ministry and not many were called to that. But he mentions in verse 19 that he traveled roundabout from Jerusalem to Illyricum. I'm going to have trouble with that name. Say it five times. Which would, now, Illyricum was, it's like if you see Italy, there's the Adriatic Sea and then what is now current day Croatia, used to be Yugoslavia. That's where that place is. Tried to avoid saying it. In other words, it was a long ways from Jerusalem. I added up in his missionary journeys. I found a chart last night, and I decided not to get too involved with it. But he traveled over ten thousand miles in his three missionary journeys, and then his one one-way trip to Rome. <laughs> so uh, the point is, is he says, "I made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been preached before." Uh, he mentions that this trip, this area of the map, uh, east of Italy and across the Adriatic Sea, and what he's trying to get at and what he's pointing out is that his work was a pioneering work. Have you ever heard of a pioneering missionary? That's somebody that goes and they begin a new work. There are mission organizations you can go tag on to an existing work, but there are those who are called to a pioneering work. And There's room in God's economy for the person who's called to stay, but there's also room for the person who's called to go. Paul was called to go. I have a friend uh, named uh, a couple, actually, Steve and Nora uh, Brazelton, lived in Monterey. Now they live in Malawi, which is in eastern Africa. And at 75 years old, his wife started, her heart started getting stirred up. And she said, you know, Steve, honey, I think that we're called to go be missionaries and start a new work in in eastern Africa. He was like, no, 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 no. Um, (laughs) the, The church is Calvary Chapel, Monterey Bay, a huge church down there. I mean, and their pastor had, had, uh, retired from the ministry, and so he was filling in as he was a, 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 an associate pastor, and he had stepped in as the uh, transitional pastor while they were looking for a new guy. And he's like, "I am up to here with busyness and responsibilities and all of that." And he thought, "You know, there's no way." So in his mind, he thought, "I got an idea." It, uh, he had or shared this with Stacy and I at lunch one day. It, he said. I'm going to tell my wife, well, you know what? We'll just turn this over to the elders because I know that the board of elders in this church will say, you know, we need you here. <laughs> so he calls an elders meeting 
you can guess. <laughs> and he said, and they totally got behind it. And, and, and it was like, and my wife is going, yay. And I'm kind of like freaked out because I'm 75 years old and now I'm supposed to go, you know, start this. And they went and, and great opposition. And I mean, it won't go into all the details, but a fruitful, fruitful ministry in Eastern Africa at 75 years old. Praise God. They were called to go. That's my point. Paul wanted to go to new places. That was his spirit. That was how he was built. He wanted to bring the gospel to places in which it had not been heard. He wanted to go to people, the Gentiles, to whom the gospel had not even, it wasn't known. And so, yeah, that was his ministry. He didn't want to build on another man's work. He essentially was a trailblazer. And I'm not talking about the NBA. But, you know, again, this is an area where I, I advise caution. Over the years, I've heard, experienced different things about this. Uh, not long after I was born again, this is back in the early 80s, a couple that I knew, a couple in the church, and they were, you know, they, they loved the Lord and all of that. But they came, they told me that God had given them a word for me. <laughs> To which I, I was young in the Lord, and I was like, oh, really? <laughs> now I go, okay, well, maybe when he gives me that word, I'll, I'll go with it. But they said that God was calling me to the mission field. And I got all excited and was like, man, you know, what if? And gee, where would we go? And blah, 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 blah. And it's like, at the end of it, I'm really glad that that was something that they thought, but it wasn't the case. I'm so glad that I didn't just take their word and run with it. God had other plans. So, and then years later, I was at a, at a pastor's conference one time, and a guy was telling me, he says, if you're not specifically called to stay, then you're automatically called to go. And I just looked at it, and by that time, I kind of knew better. <laughs> I looked at the guy, and I went, well, and, and some of you guys know, when, when I'm kind of hung up on something, I'll just look at you and say, that's interesting. <laughs> And that was what I told him. I said, that's interesting <laughs> because I don't see either of these here. Paul was called to a pioneering work. That's for sure. That's part of how the New Testament was going to be transmitted to us. So he was called to go. But what about the people to whom he went? They weren't all called to go. I would submit to you that unless they were called to go, they were there to build up the church where they were. The same with us. The important thing to consider, folks, is not whether I'm called to go or I'm called to stay, but as Paul writes here, but whether or not I'm willing to be obedient in that call. Verse 22, for this reason, I've also been much hindered from coming to you. So he's essentially saying in fulfilling my ministry and going to all these new places, preaching the gospel to the people who've not known, it's been fruitful for the sake of the gospel, but it's hindered me from coming to you. Proverbs 16.9 tells us a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Be open, be flexible to the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. If God has burdened your heart in a particular direction, that's wonderful. But I'll tell you what, I've learned over the years, there is victory or safety in a multitude of counselors. If there are trusted people you know in the Lord, talk with them about it. doesn't mean that their answer is it. But if what you're getting is a whole bunch of no's and you're thinking yes, you really need to look at that thing. 
And what you're getting is a bunch of yeses, <laughs> like my friend Steve. Oh, God's not calling me to Malawi. I'm busy here. <laughs> well, the multitude of counselors that he sought unanimously <laughs> sent him to Malawi. <laughs> so the point is, is that be open. Be open to the moving of the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-size-fits-all answer. Some are called to stay. I would submit most are called to stay. Some are called to go. Um, the other thing I think about this is Paul, at this time when he's writing this, he could have no idea that when he did go to Rome, that he would go bound in chains. Because he's talking about, hey, I'm going to, and we'll see here, I, I want to come and see you on my way to Spain. <laughs> well, <laughs> that wasn't God's plan. That was his. The other thing that I think is interesting here too is that Paul could look at his ministry as being a hindrance to getting to Rome. He put his ministry obligations first, going and seeing his friends in Rome after that. So he says, well, my ministry has been a hindrance to being able to come to you. But once he was there, and he would go, as I mentioned, in chains, he would go under arrest. He would not look at his being imprisoned in Rome as a hindrance to his ministry. He knew, and he that's why he called himself a prisoner of Christ. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He knew that that was God's specific will in his life, and he embraced it. It wasn't like an interruption to his ministry. It was his ministry. If that were not the case, he would not have written the letters to the churches that he wrote while he was held there in Rome, and we wouldn't have the benefit of several of the letters, powerful letters in the New Testament. It was part of God's call upon his life. Paul understood that fruitful ministry would take place as he fulfilled that which God had called him to do, whether he was in chains or he was a free man. Folks, I look at our culture, I look at the condition of the body of Christ, especially in Western nations, and it appears to me, I may be wrong on this, but the days of easy Christianity, I believe, are numbered. And I would not be fulfilling my ministry if I didn't warn you that those days may easily be numbered. I look at what's happening in just Canada, just the nation just to the north of us. I look at the things that are going on, the, the, the mounting, rising persecution against the church. And we need to be aware. Nobody hopes for persecution, but there's a place in the heart of every healthy believer where we acknowledge that persecution may come. My wife looks at me and laughs. She says, you wouldn't do good in jail. So. Thanks, honey. But the point is, is that's real. I mean, nearly all of the prophets of the Old Testament were persecuted, many to the death. So was Jesus, our hero, as were the apostles, as were countless people down through the ages. If you look at church history, it is just full of the people of God being persecuted. Understand that. Let it be a settled issue in your life, in your heart. That may come, and it may come in our lifetimes, because I'll tell you what, you don't need me to tell you how the world is tilting off its axis these days. I heard this morning, and we need to pray for Russia, for the Ukraine. I heard this morning that Vladimir Putin has put his nuclear arsenal on high alert. That's crazy. I couldn't say that a week ago. Look at how things are just hurtling towards the end of the age. Let the fact that you may have to endure persecution be settled in your own heart. It's been easy to be a Christian in the United States of America. It may not always be. There are bills that have been sitting idle in Congress 
that if they were passed, persecution would be guaranteed. Verse 22, he says, But now no longer having a place in these parts and having great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So the reason he says he's no longer he no longer has a place in these parts is not because there wasn't yet work to be done. But Paul, you gotta realize this guy's he is plugged in to the working and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his life. And he's sensing the Spirit's leading as his work there was coming to a close. Uh, I'm fond of saying, folks, every ministry has a birth, a life, and an end. So I mean you being at this church, me being in the pulpit, it has a birth, it has a life, and it has an end. That's the nature of the kingdom. And, and what he's saying here is, is that <laughs> he doesn't have a place in these parts because his work is coming to an end. I, I, I was doing jail ministry one time, and the Lord shut that ministry down. And it really flipped my noggin. I was like, what did I do wrong? You know, I'm, is there sin in my life? You know, I was going through all this weird stuff. And my dad in the Lord, a guy by the name of Bobby that I I loved dearly, uh, was discipled by him for 30 years. Uh, He said, John, you got to realize we get all excited when God raises a ministry up. We should be just as excited when he takes one down because he's going to do something different. And Paul is saying here, you know what? God's doing something different. My work here, where I've been, is wrapping up. There's still needs, but he's trusting the Lord for that. As we'll see in chapter 16, Paul in his travels had become acquainted with a great many people. Uh, I love the list, and we'll get to it beginning next week. I don't know if we'll wrap it up or not, but uh, we're, as I mentioned, we're winding down. But here he's saying, I'm planning a trip to Spain. It's debatable as to whether or not he ever got to Spain. There are some who say that he visited Spain between his first and second imprisonments because we know he was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest in a rented house chained to a Praetorian guard and that he was released for a time. There's not a lot of information on that. So he may have indeed gone to Spain at that time. We don't know. Regardless, he states... Two reasons for bringing this up. The first is he sees Rome as a necessary stop on his trip. Could have been for supplies or for financial support, uh, other necessary things, we don't know. But secondly, most importantly probably, is that he simply wants to spend some time with them. And I'm not looking for, I'm not reaching for some deep theological meaning here. What he's saying is he enjoys their company and he wants to hang out with them. And I think that's great. Verse 25. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, for they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things... Their duty is also to minister to them in material things. So what Paul is saying here is he has one extremely important matter of business to tend to that he's got to take care of before he can travel to Rome. He'd been gathering an offering from the Gentile churches for months. And, and understand too, that there, there were two offerings that are recorded in God's word for us. So the first 
this is the second of the two. The first one we see in Acts chapter 11 where uh, there was a, a worldwide uh, famine that was about to take place and that they received an offering, took it to Jerusalem for the people there because of the famine. But here, years later, th- things were not good for the believers in Jerusalem or Judea. As the seed of Judaism, to convert to Christ was to invite real hardship upon one's family, not just yourself. I mean, it was it was your entire family. We're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that at the time that Stephen was stoned to death, that a great persecution arose against the church, which was in Jerusalem. And that continued. Those unbelieving Jews hated Christians. Paul was one of them. He could speak with authority on this. We've talked about that. The point is, is that he had been receiving this offering for the people he once persecuted to come and to present them with help. The the Messianic Jews in Jerusalem uh, would be excommunicated from the temple because of their faith in Christ. Now, that wasn't just like being excommunicated from one of the churches in town. (laughs) It was the only one in town. And it wasn't just church. It wasn't just synagogue. To be excommunicated in those days meant that you lost your base. Your family would be ostracized. Your work would disappear. No one would hire you. You would be on your own. Horribly persecuted by the religious leaders, the zealous Jews, also the Romans. As we'll see in verse 31, Paul knew that it would be at his own peril to go to Jerusalem. However, he trusted in his heart that God had tasked him with collecting and delivering the support they so desperately needed. Verse 28, he says, Therefore, I have, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you, Rome, to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. I love that. So, What Paul seems to be indicating here is that he's not planning to stay for a long time. Now, sometimes he would travel to a city like Corinth and he would stay for a while. Ephesus stayed for a couple of years. But here, this looks like it's a stop on the way. Um, He wanted to see these people on his way to Spain. So, but interesting, in verse 28, there are three things I want to look at uh, and I want to touch on. The first is he says that he has a task to complete. Uh, when I've performed this, he says, Paul saw this as something which the Lord himself had tasked him with, and he intended to perform it. He intended to be faithful to that which God had called him to do. I love the fact, too, about this, folks, that here is the great apostle Paul. This is, I mean, this guy has been planting churches all over the empire, and God tasks him with, hey, I need you to deliver an offering. It wasn't too small for him. He saw this as so important, he was going to not go to Rome in order to carry this out. I love it when I have um, people who offer to help with the ministry that have an attitude of whatever. What, what, what can I do? How can I serve? Not, oh, I'll do this, but not that. <laughs> you know, I love seeing that heart. This is the heart that Paul has here. He's not too big. He's not too important to divert from his plans. But he really wants to see these people and to go running off to Jerusalem to deliver this offering. 
The second thing is he plans to seal the collection to them. I think that's really interesting wording. It's the same word that Paul uses elsewhere when he talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. What it means is to authenticate or to provide a mark of ownership. He wants to make sure that they receive it and that it's theirs. In other words, he's going to personally see that this offering gets to the intended recipients. He's taking charge of that, taking responsibility for that himself. It's important to him. The third thing we see is he refers to the offering as fruit. We've been talking about fruitful service to God this morning. It can be, it can, in our lives, it can mean being called to a new pioneering work. Yeah, some, that happens too. But it can also mean being called to abide in the place in which we've been called. True. But either way, in any case, we're all called to be sensitive to the needs of others. James says, herein is pure and undefiled religion, helping widows and orphans and the like. Last month, I made an appeal uh, in our little church for support to those who remain in great danger in Afghanistan. Folks, I got to tell you, by the end of that day, I was blessed. Um, Our little church did the same thing as Paul speaks of here. Seeing a need, responding to the need generously. If you support this ministry financially, or if you respond to that specific need, to that appeal, that fruit is sealed to you. You've heard me say before, if you support the work of the ministry, and we're involved in mission outreach in several different areas, locally and internationally, then you share in the fruit of that ministry. That is sealed to you. Regarding Afghanistan, I'm blessed that our body was able to make an offering above our normal missions. I mean, we have a monthly mission budget and we support different missions. We were able to make an offering above that of $2,600, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah, I mean, significant for us, for for a small church like this. Uh, That was just a wonderful, wonderful blessing. So in verse 29, Paul speaks of coming to them in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. And I want to tell you, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) But not according to Paul's plans. I personally don't believe he made it to Spain. He might have, but there's no record that he did. But it was according to the plan of God. He says in verse 30, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now, this is the most solemn appeal for prayer that Paul makes in all of his writings. He's saying, man, I need prayer. The Holy Spirit had actually told him that chains and troubles awaited him in Jerusalem. And he's saying, look, I need you to pray for me. This is a dangerous trip. And it would be a dangerous trip. I mean, we read in the book of Acts what happened when he was in Jerusalem. And it wasn't good. First, well, he makes this appeal knowing that he'll be vulnerable in a number of ways. Uh, And the first is that he would be vulnerable to the hatred of the Jews. You read in the book of Acts again, and you see these guys chased this, they chased Paul all over the empire. 
And when he gets into, I mean, he talks about trouble in the, in the sea, trouble on land, trouble with you know, all of the, and he just gets tossed around. Primarily, that was the Jews that hated him. Strong word, but it fits. And they wanted him dead. They perceived him to be a great threat, not just to Judaism, but to their thing. Secondly, was the possibility of resistance by the Jewish believers to receiving an offering from Gentile churches. Think about it. He says, you know, <laughs> um, that my service for Jerusalem in verse 31 may be acceptable to the saints. You know, the prejudices of the Jews towards the Gentiles ran very deep. And though the gospel removes those prejudices theologically, generations of hatred and mistrust were not easily dissolved. I think about Jesus with the the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. He goes, he sees this woman at the well, he says, hey guys, go off to to Sychar to go get lunch, (laughs) go get some groceries. And he has this dialogue with the woman by himself. When they come back, and this woman is, by that time, she's pretty, (laughs) she's pretty jacked up about the things he's saying to her. He's told me everything I've ever done and all that. When they come back, their jaws were on the ground because they knew that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans and they did not like the fact that here he is essentially having a really sweet talk with this gal. (laughs) Those prejudices ran deep. And even in these Jewish men who were following the Christ himself, they wrestled with it. And Paul knew that there was an absolute possibility that when he brought this offering to Jerusalem, that the Jews would wrestle. He means from the Gentiles. They still, that's why there's so much written about Jews and Gentiles being in the same boat in this. We're all in this together. That was the title of a message a couple of weeks ago. And so he was concerned about it. Thirdly, the Roman governors there, they, they were hucksters um, in government office. That's never happened since. Um, but they were, they were totally influenced by the Jewish leadership because the Jews, that Rome had set up a puppet, puppet government in Israel and it was the Sanhedrin and it was the, the ruling elite and the Romans had learned that they could work it and by, by showing disfavor towards the Christian and favor towards them, they could advance their own agenda. So they were more easily stirred up against Christians as well. So Paul knew that this was going to be a tough trip. And he understood the power of prayer. So he enlists the Romans, the church at Rome, to strive together with him in it. He talks about striving in prayer. Folks, a lot of times when I go to pray, I will, partly because I'm ADD. If you don't know that about me, you will. Um... I, I sometimes I just depart in the middle of a conversation. It drives my wife nuts. The point is to strive in prayer, to be in a place to where you get past that initial chatter in your mind. For me, it takes about 10, 15 minutes to settle my heart just because everything that's undone in my life, every chore, every task that I've got, all of the stuff, the people that I'm involved, all of these things, I mean, it just comes flooding in when I sit down to settle my heart before God and pray. Strive past that. If that's you, it may not be. You may just sit down to pray and there it goes. 
But needless to say, Paul understood the power of prayer and he was enlisting the Romans to strive with him in prayer, to stick with it. Keep me in the focus of your prayer life. This is a dangerous trip. Don't, don't, don't ever underestimate the power of prayer in your life, in our lives. Folks, when we pray, we are moving things in the supernatural realm. Talked about that. We are reaching into that realm and we are moving things in this. As we petition God, as we come to him with our, our anxieties and our hurts and our worries, whatever kind of prayer it is, strive with him in prayer. Stick with it. Be like the woman with the judge. Remember the woman, Jesus tells the story about the woman. She goes pounding on that judge's door and he won't answer. And so she just continues to pound and continues to pound and continues to pound. And finally he says, all right already. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially his attitude. Okay, I'll give you what you're asking for. That's striving in prayer. As we look at these things and what it is to have a fruitful ministry in our lives from the Lord, it's critical that we understand that all of this is accomplished through prayer. Pray for our world. It's every day. There's something crazy going on. Whether it involves directly involves the body of Christ or not, our world is a mess. Pray. Pray for our nation. I am not going to turn this into a political pulpit. But that's a mess too. And um, our leadership needs prayer. They need to get saved for one thing. All right, I'm not going to go there. All right. Pray for our nation. Pray for our community. Newburgh has been a battleground, if you haven't noticed, (laughs) and it still is. Pray for our community. Pray for our schools. Pray for our leadership. Be committed to prayer. Pray for our church. Pray for Calvary Chapel Newburgh. That's the name on the door, but it's a group of believers that do more than come down here and sing a few songs and look at a book. It's the body of Christ. A body of Christ among many. But pray for our church. Pray for the body here. Pray for me. Pray for our elders, for our leadership. We're sometimes tasked with tough decisions. We sometimes have to deal with things we don't want to deal with. I'm blessed that we have a loving Board, both our, our board of directors, our board of elders, that God has really blessed us with solid leadership. Pray for our leadership. Pray for our church. Pray for yourselves. Be that person that says, Lord, examine my heart. Let me, give me the ability to examine my own heart, to do honest self-reflection. That's hard. It's hard. It's hard for me to look at my own heart and say, God, I don't like what I see. Change me. Be committed to prayer. Paul, when he appeals to the Roman church here, he's saying, I need, I don't just want your prayers. I need your prayers. And that I I think about that. I read in the book of Acts, the things that he went through when they're trying to tear him, literally tear him to pieces when he gets to Jerusalem. And I think those prayers of the saints in Rome had to have been effective because they can't prevail. And God's will would be carried out. Verse 33, end of the chapter. He says, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul wraps up. Yeah, he asked them to pray for him. He wraps up by praying for them. He's a man of prayer. 
I, I love in, in the book of Ephesians, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from every family and, and heaven and earth takes his name. And he goes on. Uh, I, those passages where he's just teaching away and then all of a sudden he just begins to pray. Let your life be marked by that. I love that he finishes this by simply praying for them. And it wasn't a long-winded thing. Oh, thee, oh, thou omnipotent God and the universe and all that stuff. He says, may the God of peace be with you. Amen. <laughs> and I'm going to end there with may the God of peace be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> as we look at these things, uh, my heart is just stirred. Lord, as we look into things that angels long to see, into that realm in which you dwell, as we look at, Lord, the supernatural in our lives, help us not to take it as everyday mundane, to not take the things uh, that you have ordained as common things. Lord, I pray for each one here that as you work in our hearts, as you stir us, as we examine our hearts before you, as we open ourselves to you, that we would, Lord, give you permission that our will would align with yours in wanting you to continue to conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, we're so thankful for your love. We're so thankful for your grace that's poured out on our lives every day. We're thankful, Lord, for your word that as you speak to us, you accomplish things in us. I pray, Father, for each one that those nuggets that each of us may have received this morning, that we would take those things seriously that we would hold our lives up to you and that we would invite you to perform that divine surgery on us. We give ourselves afresh to you, Lord. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for this place to gather. And Lord, I, I thank you for this body of believers. What a blessing it is to experience your love among us. In Jesus' name, amen.